You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, I hope you do grab it and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Guests, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open the scriptures for us regularly and excited to do so. We're going to end here uh, in the, the first letter to the Thessalonians this morning. Uh, if you are a guest, it's our practice to walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say. And so each week we come to gather around uh, His Word. And not only to gather around it, but to hear it and respond to it, to submit our lives to it because it isn't just that we hear it, but it's actually actually we internalize it and respond to it. And so, if you don't have a Bible, <clears throat> you can grab one and turn. Oh, there's a black colored Bibles in front of you. If you don't have one, turn to page one thousand and forty-eight, and you can follow along uh, with us this morning. I don't know about you, but I enjoy uh, movies and TV shows. Uh, and so you may have a show that runs, you know, five or six or seven seasons, uh, maybe ten seasons, uh, and you're waiting. You know that at some point that show is going to come to an end. And you hope and pray that that show ends on a really good note. Uh, you're not sure what they're going to do. You just know it's coming to an end. We know it's got to stop at some point. But what's the ending going to be like? Well, uh, my wife uh, tragically introduced me to the show Lost about three years ago, and I so enjoyed the show. It was great, made you think uh, a lot. You didn't know what was going to happen. Then you get to the final episode, and you're just like, that's how it ends? Like, what in the world? Why did I just spend, uh, well, maybe it was like four months, maybe of us binge-watching Lost. I can't remember, but either way, he's like, why did it have to end that way? I mean, what a terrible ending. Paul doesn't do that to us this morning. I actually... At none of the biblical story actually leaves us in a place where like, oh, that's how it ends? No, in fact, what the Bible does, it holds up a picture of a beautiful reception of God's people with Christ, and we are able to be with him forever. And this is actually what has driven Paul's letter pretty much the second half of the, of the letter, right? He's, this is Christ is returning. Christ is coming back for his people. Rejoice in that. Take hope in that. We are not left wondering what's going to happen. And so as Paul, as we come to the end of this letter this morning, Paul is going to conclude the letter the same way he started, by focusing on what God has done in the Thessalonians. The first three chapters, this is what God has done in you. You know this is true. Chapters 4 and 5. But also remember that Christ is coming back. Remember how you ought to live. And so now as we come to these last five verses, these almost like a punch list, hey, remember these things. If you are a disciple today, this is what you should take away. This is what you should do this morning. Our hope must be centered on God. His work in us and his work through us. Our hope is what shapes our holiness. We've been talking about this the whole letter. And now may our hope now be centered on God, particularly his work in us and his work through us. 
If we don't remember what God has done and what he is doing in and among us, then we are often able to forget to be weighed down by the world, to be in shackles of fear, anxiety, and depression because we forget that God is faithful. If we look back to this wonderful letter, what we see is that we, just like the Thessalonians, have received the gospel. We've received it. We hold on to it. We cherish it together. And not only that, now it it rains out from us, just like it did them. And we saw in chapter 2 that you know how Paul ministered among this church, how he labored, worked hard among these people. We're now invited into that kind of ministry. That we, when we center our hope on God, we see that our lives are worth something. We have a purpose that we now give our lives to. We labor. We work hard. We continue to press on. And we see what it looks like for someone like Paul, an apostle of God, to labor so hard and to desire to be with these people. He cared very deeply about this church that he planted, that he started. And it shares with them. And what we see is that the gospel not only starts something, it also grows love and affection in us. And then what we saw Paul do is he gets to chapter 4 and he says, because of all this, now you're to live in light of this. You're to be sanctified. That our sanctification is something that matters to God, that we become more like Jesus Christ, both in our sexuality and in our love for one another. But don't forget, church, that Jesus is coming back. He will not only come back, but he will raise the dead from the graves and we will be resurrected with our Lord. That is where Paul founds our hope. Is in a resurrection with the living Lord of the universe. And in light of that, in light of Christ coming back, let's not speculate about that, but instead let's live that way. That we know that whatever comes our way, that we may live in light of the hope of his return. And then last week, what we talked about was the gospel gives us responsibilities in our relationships. That the church that's now been formed and the church that has a hope on the gospel now lives a certain way. Which brings us now to verse 23 of, this, of these final words that Paul has written to them. And so how do we want to think about it? If if we are to center our hope on God and what he's done in us and what he's doing through us, what do we need to think about today? Well, I want to show you five actions that help us center our hope on God. So number one, as we start here in verse 23, number one, until Jesus returns, we will trust in God's faithfulness. Paul, he concludes this letter he returns to prayer. He's prayed two other times in the letter already. And what he does is the prayers actually focus on what he's going to talk about. But now Paul uses the prayer to remind them of what he's already talked about in chapters 4 and 5. Right, Paul will pray for their sanctification and grounds their hope of sanctification in God's faithfulness. Look back there at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Paul's focus is on God, and particularly the God of peace. In the midst of all the questions, persecution, opposition, and suffering, Paul now lifts their head again one more time. 
Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. He focuses their attention on God and his peace. What he's saying is God is the source of peace. He's the foundation of peace. You can't have peace without him. It's what comes from him. Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter 4 verse 7. The peace of God transcends all understanding. And peace is this wholeness. It's it's this well-being. It doesn't mean that there's no conflict. It doesn't mean that we're not suffering. It doesn't mean that we're not going through hardships. In fact, it's peace despite all of those other things. When we sing songs like, It is well with my soul, what we are saying is, It doesn't matter what comes my way. I I am whole in Christ. Even though there may be conflict, our God is a God of peace. And what we see is that it's not only about our efforts. But it's the God of peace who then will sanctify us. Sanctification or holiness, this word sanctify, we've seen it in chapter 4. It's the theme throughout the last two chapters. It's a process. Sanctification is to become holy, to become like God in Christ. And some of us, we wonder, but will I ever quit dealing with this sin? But Paul says, no, I pray that God will sanctify you completely. It's going to come to its intended end and Paul asked God to sanctify us completely he what he's saying is to make us entirely and fully holy maybe even consistently holy that our actions line up with what we say and not only what we say but our actions line up with who we are remember 14 times in this letter he says brothers and sisters You are in Christ. You are made new in the gospel. If that is you, then remember that God will make you fully and entirely holy. That each day, more and more, we reflect the gospel in our lives. And he continues, he says, And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul now restates the prayer a different way. He says, I want you to be sanctified. Let me say it a different way. He's interested in the growth and maturity of these people, that they grow in Christ. And he asks that their whole being be kept sound and blameless. I remember we were in James back at the start of the year. James is concerned with that we are mature, lacking in nothing. It's the same idea that Paul is concerned with here. And he includes our entire being, our spirit, soul, and body. Now, Paul has not given us a lesson on human nature. That's not his concern here. Right? He uses other ways to talk about that, the body and the soul. Here, he is rather speaking to talk about the complete and full nature of the sanctification. Every inch of you, both physically and spiritually, will be sanctified when Christ comes back. He's not concerned with thinking about, well, the whole body. No, he's talking about every part of you will be sanctified. Every atom of our beings, if we are in Christ, will be made completely and fully holy. So we will be fully and completely sanctified. But why is this so important to Paul? Why is he so concerned? Why does he end his letter with, I pray that you are fully sanctified because sin touches every part of our being, if we're being honest. 
Every part of us has been touched by sin, both the physical nature. Some of us deal with physical ailments because of sin entering into this world and breaking it. Some of us struggle mentally. We have difficulties in our minds because sin has broken even our minds. And of course, we struggle with sin because we feel the effects of the fall. And we choose sin. We choose idols over God. And so Paul is very concerned with both our inner and outer selves. But God is going to sanctify all of this. And Paul, he prays that. God, would you make these people fully holy? And you see, the Greeks, they thought that the body was a tomb. It was a prison for the soul. The body was, it didn't matter what you did with the body. Just you want to get rid of it, and then the soul will be released, and then that's the best part. That's getting to heaven in their estimation. But no, Paul says, no, it's all, both physical and spiritual, all of us will be renewed. We will be resurrected. Remember chapter 4. We will be resurrected like Christ. And so how we view this world and how we view our bodies and what we do with them matters. Because if God is going to sanctify not just my spirit, but also my body, then that will then talk to me about how I'm supposed to live with this body and in this body. I'm supposed to care for them. I'm supposed to care for others. I'm supposed to help people realize that, no, it is both a physical and spiritual gospel. Not only will we, we be resurrected with Christ, we'll be fully sanctified. And Paul ties this together in Romans 8. This beautiful, the beautiful statement. Who he justifies, he will glorify. And he, Paul just beautifully ties these things together. The sanctification is a part of the resurrection process. We don't know how that's going to look. We don't know what's exactly going to happen. Other than when Jesus returns, we will be fully sanctified. And so our hope can be there. And Paul, now he grounds. Look at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. The same God that's called us into salvation. Right? Salvation is not to be, well, I get to go to heaven. No, heaven is a side effect. It's a, it's a part of the deal that, no, you are being made holy in Christ. That's what salvation means. You are saved to be like Christ. And that salvation, we've been called in it, into it continually. That the salvation we've received is when we're going to continue to receive. We're going to continue to grow. Salvation is a past, present, and future work of God. We trust in Christ's finished work on the cross. We repent and believe in Christ to save us from our sins. And we trust that God will save us from his wrath when Christ returns. This is not just a thing that we do in the past. No, salvation is something we experience both in the past and the present and in the future. And in reality, in the gospel, when we live in Christ, that we've been saved from our sin and from God's wrath, we're also saved for sanctification, for our holiness. And so sanctification is an all-encompassing thing that we are a part of. We trust in Christ. And this passage, along with others, must be held in tension. That yes, we are called to persevere and endure, to press on in the gospel. But it's also that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. You're called to work. You're called to give your life away. You're called to fight sin. Absolutely. But it's held in tension with this beautiful reality that God, what he said he's going to do, he will do it. And why can Paul ask this? 
Why can Paul even go to God and say this? Because God is faithful. This is his character. This is who he is. His promises will be fulfilled. Remember, what he, what he told Moses, it came to pass. What he promised to King David, I will make your kingdom, your throne will never end. We know that's true in Christ. We know that he was faithful to Israel, even despite their sin. We're reading through the book of First and Second Kings in our equipped class, and my goodness, you see the, just the downfall of Israel, but yet God is still faithful. No matter what, God is faithful to his people. It is this God that we look to and find our hope in because he is faithful. And church, let me be very clear. Our motivation to pursue holiness is not our own self-righteousness. But the true and undeniable fact that our God will see our sanctification to its end. May you not run after righteousness for righteousness' sake. May you not run after righteousness because you want to be liked or to be thought well of. No, may we be righteous because we are trusting in the faithfulness of God that He will, at the end of our days and at the end of time, make us holy. And if you're trying to find holiness in anything other than that, then you will ultimately fail. You may fool yourself for a while, but you will not be able to beat sin. You will not be righteous unless you look to the faithful promises of God. And Paul says the same thing in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We can have confidence and trust in God's power to sanctify us. Even in some of the most difficult sin struggles. That all of us brought those into the room this morning. Some of you have been fighting a particular sin for decades. Some of you have been fighting a sin for maybe uh, for five years or for maybe three months. Even in our weakness to defeat sin, our God is faithful. And we can trust Him over our own abilities, over our own victory. No, God in Christ has been victorious over our sin. We can trust Him in difficulty and uncertainty. He is faithful. And when we center our hope on God and not ourselves, our confidence can grow. And that confidence should then lead to a holy life shaped by that hope in the gospel. So we must trust in God's faithfulness. We will trust in it. But secondly, until Jesus returns, we will pray for God's mission. Look there at verse 25. Paul, he transitions from praying for the Thessalonians to asking, hey, pray for us as well. He says, brothers and sisters, pray also for us. And Paul has modeled this faithful and intentional prayer for these people. Right, This young church, he models what it looks like. And then he demonstrates a desire for them to grow in their godliness. But now he says, no, pray for us, church. Pray that we will have the same impact. The relationship is not one-sided. It's mutual, right? Their relationship with Paul and the other apostles and with Silas and Timothy is a good gospel partnership. Churches are partnered with each other, right? These partnerships cannot be one-way streets, 
right? The family of God prays for one another. Now, Paul doesn't go into great detail about what to pray for, but we can assume the same kinds of things he did throughout the letter. For gospel reception, he's, you know, in the first part of chapter one, that faith, love, and hope will be uh, received, that they will welcome God's word, that wherever Paul and his team go, that the word of God will be welcomed, they should pray for gospel transformation, right? That they will endure in suffering and opposition. That whatever comes Paul's way, that they will be able to rest in God's faithfulness. They will be committed to love and holiness and hope. And ultimately, Paul is probably asking, pray that the gospel be proclaimed in our words and in our deeds. Right? Just like it came to you and it rang out from you, pray that the same thing will be for us. Pray that God's mission will not be hindered by persecution or opposition. Pray that we will be able to endure despite all of those tragedies. But church, if we want the mission of God to be flourishing here, the mission of God will only be as fruitful as his church is faithful. I'm not saying that God's mission won't come to its end. No, it will. But if we want the mission of God to be faithful here, then it does depend on how faithful we are to him. Our sanctification is the foundation to our proclamation and must therefore flow into gospel mission. Not because we are told to, but because we get to. We get to share the amazing news that we have received the gospel and now proclaim it. Paul says, pray for us in the same way. Pray for the mission of God that it would so shape our lives and those that we encounter. That we would be characterized as people who know Jesus and talk about him and share him because he has so changed our lives. Yes, he's commanded us to, but we get to. We get to share the, this transformation that we've received. God is working in us so he can work through us. But how can we join in these kinds of prayers? Well, how, how do we actually do that? Well, first, we need to pray collectively and for individual godliness. Both as a whole, as our church, hey, we grow in godliness together. But also we pray for individually that we will grow in godliness. That we all walk with Christ. We all follow God. But secondly, we pray for a burdened heart for the lost. If we have compassion. Jesus in his ministry looked out on the crowd's he knew that they were caught in sin and all the worldly things that would entangle them. But what does the gospel writers tell us often? It says that Jesus was moved with compassion. May we have a heart burdened for the lost together. May we pray diligently for our hearts to be shaped so that they can know the gospel. And thirdly, may we then pray for them to know Christ. May we then not just pray for it, but then go share it. I heard a story of a, of a young man who he, he prayed for uh, the needs in his city to be met. He said, God, would you, would you please, uh, there were people uh, hungry. He said, God, please, would you feed people who are hungry today? Then he would leave, and he would go take food to them, and he would do the thing that he prayed for. So church, if we want God to save people, may we pray for it and then go. May we have a burdened heart and then share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. 
And this is what the church in Thessalonica was doing. Right? They weren't, they weren't receiving opposition or suffering under uh, their community because they were like, hey, we're just going to worship on Sunday to ourselves. No, they were saying Jesus is king. He is Lord. And so that brings opposition. But may we pray for even those who may oppose us and who may reject us. May we pray for them to come to know the lost, know Christ. And fourthly, and what Paul is saying is, is praying for the workers in the harvest. Pray for us as we minister. Pray for us as we share. Matthew 9, 36 tells us when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, as I just said, because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, compassion moves him to speak to his disciples. The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. May we pray for the lost. May, who are the people in our lives that we know don't know Jesus? And are we praying for them? Are we asking God to save them? Are we asking God to give us opportunities to share the gospel with them? Are we asking God, who is over all of these things, please help us reach those who are lost? Because it's his harvest. He is in control. He's already working. He's working in us and he's already working in them. We just have to find where he's working. And go share. Go proclaim. Go speak the gospel into these people's lives. May we invite them into what God is doing in our lives. When we center our hope on God, we know that we know our need for him to work in us and through us. And our prayers, what they do is they model the gospel and they model intentionality in our own lives. And in many ways, our prayers display what our hearts are mostly concerned about. Prayer demonstrates what our hearts are mostly concerned about. So are we concerned with God's mission? Are we concerned with what he has asked us to do? But thirdly, until Jesus returns, we will welcome God's people. So as we await Christ's return, we proclaim the gospel together. We don't do this alone. Right? The church is a family of believers who are affectionate towards one another, who care deeply for one another, who love one another. Look at verse 26. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I'm not kissing one of you dudes in the room. It's not happening. And so if you saw this, you're like, hey, what, what does this mean? What's going on? Don't fret. Okay, don't fret. Paul calls us to this holy kiss. What he's saying, show deep brotherly affection towards one another. This word holy, it's from the same family of words as sanctification, right? Emphasizes our family bond, our unity together. He says that love, that, that affection, that bond, show it. But how do we show it? Well, in the first century... It would be uh, from a kiss, most likely a kiss on the forehead. Right? And this word kiss comes from the same words that we get love from. It was only performed between close family members. Right? And it was still rare at that point. It wasn't normal for people just to kiss one another. But a kiss in the first century depicted a family bond. It was a form of deep, deep affection. 
We are to greet one another with a show of affection to display what? Our holy love towards one another. And so we are to welcome, that is to show no favoritism, no discrimination, no partiality to anyone. Or to welcome and to greet and to embrace one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the comments that we receive church is that this is it's a welcoming place. It feels like family. It feels like home. That's what Paul's talking about here. And so many of you have told me you, you felt that yourself. Gosh, this feels like home. So keep doing that. Keep offering the love of Christ to anyone who walks through those doors. This is what Paul is saying, that we may be an affectionate, inviting, welcoming people. And it feels like home. But how? How do we continue to do that? We grow in affection for one another. How do we grow in affection for one another? Well, time. The way that you grow in affection for other people is to spend time with them. That we give ourselves to them. Then we serve together. Some of the the most beautiful ways God grows relationships is for us to serve, whether it's the church body or in our community, that we just serve together. And we get to see each other's work ethic. We get to see each other's lives. We get to share about what God is doing. We get to just talk about who we are. And when we're able to do that, then it's, it's God working in us to bring us closer and bring us into affection together. Then it's through prayer that we pray for one another. That there are difficulties in the church family. Don't, don't, don't think that this is just we get together and sing kumbaya. There is conflict. There is sin. But even in the midst of those times, we're able to pray for one another. And then that prayer brings us into more love for one another. It's really hard to hate someone you're praying for. So may we be a people who are affectionate, who pray and love and serve and just spend time together. Now, practically, how do we, how do, we do this on, you know, in our worship gathering? Well, through hugs and handshakes, you don't have to kiss somebody. Right? Some people are huggers. Some people aren't. But how do we show affection with a smile, with an embrace. Paul's concern is that we demonstrate this affection towards one another. That the demonstration then shows the depth of the affection in the church. We don't want to walk into God's church and with God's people and feel like, God, I'm not sure these people are happy. I'm not sure these people love the Lord. No, we come to this place to be encouraged to grow together. And so when we, uh, we show our affection, then we're able to grow together. And the result is the gospel brings in a family and it, it knits us together. The gospel has made us a family, but then we get to experience the fruit of that family. And then church, understand that it is this kind of church, an affectionate, loving, unified church. This is God's plan to reach the lost. This is God's plan to reach the world who do not know him, who have rejected him. And so we invite people into our lives because we're living life together. We invite people into this uh, time on Sunday mornings that we show them this is what God is doing. This is what God has done. And that shows the world that this is something radically different than anything they've ever experienced before. God is clearly working in us. I believe that. He's working through us. 
And in fact, this should cause us to center our hope on God and what He has done in us in the past and what He's doing in us in the present. But the question is, how do we maintain this kind of affection for one another? Well, it brings us to our fourth action. Until Jesus returns, we're going to preach God's Word. Over the course of 2,000 years, Jesus, uh, since His resurrection and since the church has been born, we've seen the ease at which the church can kind of get off focus. They can not be centered on God. So how do we make sure that we maintain our hope and our focus on God? Paul tells us, verse 27, I charge you by the Lord, that is, this letter is to be read to all the brothers and sisters. Paul knows that we need to be reminded of the beautiful gospel that we have. And this letter is, in particular, it speaks to the gospel of hope and how it produces holiness in us. So what, what should we do? We should preach it. We should read it together. We should hear it together. This is what Paul demands. He charges us. It's it's the opposite. He's saying, I'm putting you under oath. Read this letter aloud to the brothers and sisters. And this would have been the normal thing to do in a church like Thessalonica. Why? Because most of the people probably couldn't read at that point. And so they would hear the word of the Lord read. And then they would explain anything that was misheard or misunderstood. Similar to what we do now when we come and gather around God's word. And notice, if the letter is going to be read aloud, what does that mean the church needs to do? It means the church needs to gather. The church needs to be together. This is one of the reasons we gather every Lord's Day, to hear God's word. We need to hear it. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that we need to be instructed, that we need to know how to live holy lives. But maybe more importantly, we need to be reminded of the gospel. How often are we told to remember? How often does God tell his people, remember what I have done? This is all that Paul wants. Remember Jesus. Remember him crucified and remember him raised because he's coming back for you. And Paul says, read this so that you will remember. Remember, be reminded of God's word and it helps us center our hope on God. When everything's going awry, when everything's crazy, when we're struggling, when we can't seem to root out that sin, read God's Word. Listen to the preaching of God's Word. It reminds us of the faithfulness of our God throughout history. Why is it so easy to forget, though? Why is it so easy not to prioritize God's Word in our own lives? Because we can be distracted. We can elevate things up over God's word in our lives. Whether that's the words of other people or traditions or whatever, we we begin to just maybe not take it off the podium, but we begin to scoot it over and begin to add things to its place. And may we never do that. May we always center God's word in our lives personally, but in in our life as a family of believers as well. God has given us his word to help remind us and instruct us our towards holiness, but also to hope of a final holiness, a final sanctification. God's word is able to center our hope on him and to help us know that he is working in us and through us. 
Fifthly, though, Paul comes to the end here in verse 28, which we come to our fifth action. Until Jesus returns, we will rest in God's grace. We will rest in God's grace. Look there at verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Maybe one of the most beautiful aspects of the gospel is God's grace to provide Jesus for us. This is at the heart of the gospel, that God sent Jesus into the world for us. That God, being rich in mercy, did not spare his own son, but gave him freely for us. The gospel of God is that he is so gracious, he would send his only son to die in our place. But we must not think of God's grace only in terms of God the Father. Jesus, here Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is fully God as the second person of the Trinity. He is fully gracious. That he came to be obedient, as Paul would say in Philippians 4. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because he loves us. Because he is gracious. God the Son demonstrates his grace not by just being the sovereign king of the world and of the universe, but that king becoming our savior. It is in the grace of our sovereign savior that we now rest. We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't get this salvation on our own. That's why it's called grace. And now we must rest in that grace until he returns. It is God's grace that brought us the gospel to begin with. It is God's grace that empowers us to live out the gospel together. It's the It's God's grace that grows a deep desire for God's people and God's work. It's God's grace that offers Christ holiness. It's God's grace that secures our future. God's grace is entangled in everything we do. So how do we rest in that grace? We recite the gospel daily, knowing that we are way more sinful than we could ever know, but totally loved more than we could ever imagine. So the grace of God begins to wash over us in the gospel. We begin to walk in holiness. We begin to walk together with other people. That's what the gospel does. And so when we recite it, what we're doing is we're just speaking God's grace into our hearts and into our minds. So recite the gospel. We surround ourselves with God's word. That if we're going to rest in the gospel, we're not speaking our own wisdom. We're speaking God's wisdom into us. And we surround ourselves with God's people. That they're able to encourage us and to equip us and to push us on in God's mission. Not because we have all the right answers. Not because we have all the gifts. Not that we're the best. But because we have people in our lives that are helping us walk forward in this. It isn't that we do anything. But we enjoy what God has given us to us in His grace. In church, Paul, he ends where he began. With grace. The gospel has so invaded our lives. May we be filled with the hope of what God is doing. May we be made holy because we trust him. And may this holiness not be a burden. May the holiness that's described in this letter not be a burden to us, but a desire to just be like our gracious God and to be welcomed into his family. May our holiness be shaped by our hope in Jesus Christ. Pray with me.
Holy God, you reign above all things today. You are in control of every atom in this universe. Jesus, you are our Savior. You reign with all authority. You are in control. Spirit, you work in and through us in ways that we could never imagine. You have brought us into God's family. You encourage us. You motivate us. You give hope to us. And so God, we know that you are working from the past to the present, and we know that you will work in the future for us. And so God, would you help us remember what you have done so that we may center our hope squarely on you. Because we know how the story ends. We know what you're going to do. We know that you will make us holy because your promises do come to pass. So God, would you help us remember today, would we be encouraged, and may we be motivated into the gospel personally and to the gospel collectively that we then begin to share it. We love you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.